Welcome, Rams fans, to the latest episode of the 11 Personnel Podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Rich Hammond, Rams beat writer for The Athletic, and I have a very special guest today in in so many ways, really. Uh, Tom Hofarth is joining me. Uh, Tom is an award-winning sports writer, has been covering sports in Los Angeles. I'll let, uh, Tom, I'll let you say how long it's been because I don't want to throw you under the bus. But but thanks for joining us, first of all. And the, and the reason we're talking today, other than that uh, uh, we've we've worked together on and off for about 20 years, I think, in, in newspapers. But uh, Tom has a fascinating interview that, that just got published recently in the Los Angeles Business Journal, not only the print version of it, uh, but the online version. You can go to the website labusinessjournal.com and see this interview that Tom did with Rams owner Stan Kroenke. And Tom, I'm going to throw it open to you just in general because anybody who's a Rams fan, I don't even think you have to be in the media, but anybody who's followed the Rams knows that Stan does not talk a lot. And and I know you had a specific context in in which uh, he he did this interview, but uh, tell me a little bit, but just about the the genesis of of this interview and and how you even got him to talk and uh, what surprised you uh, just uh, about even being able to talk to him. Well, Thanks, Rich. I I was surprised I was being asked to do this in the first place because my background is all over the place in covering sports media and and all different kinds of things. And it's not that um, I was the wrong person. I was just curious because the LA Business Journal wanted to name Stan their business person of the year. And they do this uh, year after year with all different people. And and Business is not really my strong point, but you know I can I can talk to people and do research and figure out things about them that is, that are interesting that are at least interesting to me. So in the yeah forty something years I've been doing this and talking to different people, um, I do a lot of different Q and As, and that's how they wanted to set this up. So I was doing research as I would normally do, and realizing there's really not been much done on him, especially with an extended Q&A. So I needed a lot of background before I could even form my own questions. And the editor of the LA Business Journal, Scott Robson, had set this interview up with Kevin Demhoff. And so they were going back and forth on how to do it. And then Scott was going to send me out to do this this interview. And it was supposed to be done face-to-face in person in Inglewood. And they were going to give us 20 minutes And as Stan was flying around and things kept getting delayed and delayed, they finally said, all right, it's got to be done this day, but Stan's in Denver. Can you do it over the phone? 20 minutes. Uh, Kevin will be, you know, connected to this conference call and you can do it. And I said, yeah, that's, that's fine. You know, I can work it out. But the problem is I'd never, I honestly didn't even know what Stan's voice sounded like. So, (laughs) I mean, silent Stan is really who he is. And I couldn't know if they were even going to put me on the phone with him, because I don't know. I'll go, I'll make a really obscure reference here. If you know, who Andy Kaufman, the comedian is, he had this alter ego named Tony Clifton mm-hmm. and Tony could be anybody. It was sometimes it was Andy. Sometimes it was somebody else dressed as Tony Clifton and would start talking. So you would believe it was Andy Kaufman. So I was wondering if Tony Clifton was going to come on the phone and start pretending he was Stan and doing this. I, it, you know, my mind was just all over the place. Cause I didn't know, what I was getting into. Right. So, so it's funny. So Kevin and I are on this 
call and we're waiting for Stan to join us. And we just start talking about the XFL and some other things and in arena football because Kevin was involved with the Avengers. And I love talking about the Avengers. And then Stan just kind of comes on and he just joins the conversation. And before you know it, we're talking for 45 minutes. And I, I ran out of questions to ask him. I just I, I, I got to keep going. This is I got him on a roll here. And, uh, you know, when I'm done with this, I go, God, I wonder if I have mat- enough material for a book, let alone just a magazine story, because <laughs> this was so fun to do. And uh, I mean, I can talk about the process of it because it was funny. We we gave him some general questions that we wanted to ask him. And mostly, again, since I'm not really in tune with the audience for this L.A. Business Journal, I don't know what their readers want to see about or, or read about. And, they, you know, it's there's standard stuff about the stadium and your interest in real estate. And, you know, it's whatever numbers add up. They, that's what they want to read about. But I'm more into the person. I'm more into what makes them tick. And so I wasn't sure if that was what these readers wanted to read. So we kind of got a combination of both. And for me, the entry point in developing a rapport with somebody, especially on the phone when you can't see them face to face and you don't know if you're resonating with your questions, is I just like to talk talk about them, about what books they're reading. And it's kind of a trick of the trade that I've learned. uh, And I would suggest it to any journalist who's out there wondering how to get an interview started with somebody who's really important is talk about things that they're reading, um, what's on their nightstand, what do they read before they go to bed, because their brain, it's it's really kind of a, I'm going off on a tangent here, but people, when they read things before they go to bed, your brain absorbs them while you're sleeping, and it lets your mind work on these things. So what I found out about Stan is he loves to read about technology, and the book that he was most fascinated about recently came out um, um, called, why am I missing the, hold on. So the book that Stan is reading now is called The Future is Faster Than You Think, How Converging Technologies Are Transforming Business, Industry, and Our Lives. And it's written by Peter Diamidis, who's from Santa Monica, and Stephen Coulter. And, and Stan just starts telling me about how he's read Peter's books before, and he's always been thought-provoking, and uh, he's been reading it for like 20-something years now. So as our conversation kept going on, he would kind of revert back to books that we had talked about. We're talking about Malcolm Gladwell and Dale Carnegie, and, and it was just fun as we were talking how he would take a business question and go back to one of those books to reference why he thinks it's important to do this, this, or this. And so that's kind of how we got on a roll. And from there, um, I was interested in in people like you and Rams fans, if they read this, what did they learn different about Stan? I mean, to me, it was an entire learning curve that went straight up. But I was wondering what you might have picked out that you you said, wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. I never thought he would be that interested in something like that. Yeah, that was a lot of it. It's interesting when Tom and I first talked about this interview, I, you know, Tom, you asked me, you know, what my contacts has been with Stan. And I said, right. I told you what the two that had been. And one was a <laughs> like a, a 30 second chat when we were at the uh, stadium one day and he was, I think they were doing the groundbreaking or something like that. And the other one was in the locker room after they won the NFC uh, championship game. And I want to be clear here. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I haven't, quite frankly, I haven't, you know, bothered the Rams to say, hey, he's just not there. Right. You, you don't even think about it to be quite 
and honest. You don't. It's not. It's not part of your day to day thought process. Like I wonder no. if I could talk to Stan Kroenke today. And uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's what was fascinating to me is we, again, you just we we don't know a lot uh, about this guy, and and I think in, in that vacuum people project a lot on him if you, if you don't yes, know about, absolutely you know and it's like that with anybody if you don't know anything about them well you just kind of make up things that you think fit the fit the narrative or, or whatever so to hear right, him talk right. again I, I'd, I'd encourage everybody to read the 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 interview it's the, the the piece is broken up online anyway into a couple different uh, sections the stuff about the books that, that Tom was talking about that's a separate little piece and I, I want to circle back to that because I found that fascinating too but the main right. interview is is all in one piece, and the thing that that got me, Tom, was it just uh, the passion that that came across for certain things. Now, obviously, he's a guy with a lot of money, and and he you know flashes it around in different places. He's you know, diversified. There's uh, you know obviously the the Walmart stuff, and he owns pieces. Uh, his family owns pieces of the Nuggets and the Avalanche and the Rams and Arsenal and everything else. That and I kind of wondered like you know how much does he really kind of how much is he personally invested in, in some of this stuff or how much is he really kind of keeping an eye on different things and, and to read his quotes about the stadium and it, it was not surface level stuff. It was not just, no, gosh, no. we think the stadium is great and gosh, we're really right. happy and everything. I mean, he was getting into really, really nitty gritty details about uh, some of the things that they're doing there, some of their vision for, for why they did certain things and how they envision the future. And the one thing I wanted to specifically ask you, Tom, or the one thing that, that grabbed me was was this idea of, I don't know whether this was his word or, or your word, I can't remember, but the idea of a beachhead um, in, in talking about Inglewood and, and this just not being a stadium that, that the Rams and the Chargers are, are going to play in, uh, but right, really right. kind of seeing this as almost like a hub or like a, a, a centerpiece uh, for the for the NFL on the West Coast. I mean, what what were your takeaways from that? He seemed very kind of passionate and very interested in in making that a reality. Yeah, that was one of the questions that the editor Scott Robson wanted to to get more in depth about because, and I came up with the word beachhead, and he he liked it because he, I think it kind of works for a West Coast place. You've got you know how many four teams, five teams now that are sort of West Coast, you know, and. Right. And the NFL is such an East Coast kind of league, and you want to have a presence in, in Southern California especially, which is why I think the NFL Network is here, which for a long time the NFL Network was the only NFL presence in L.A. after the Rams and Raiders left. But he, I think his vision, and it really goes to the vision of Roger Goodell in wanting L.A. to be the entertainment, the hub of of where things happen out here and a starting point for when you have an event or a Super Bowl or a, a you know a draft. This is a place that you can say, well, this is kind of like our first option now. And because the facility, when Stan bought this land in Inglewood, it was only 60 acres. He had it expanded to 300 when he worked with the other developer that had taken up all that other land that Hollywood Park once once put in and then it developed into not just a stadium but also all these different entities around there where he can start building a place for esports where he can um, you know not just shopping and, and all that other traditional stuff you put around a stadium but it's really a high-tech endeavor which again goes back to his love of technology which i never would have guessed 
and again having sofi as being the this the the naming rights people it's not just someone slapping their name on the stadium it's somebody who's actually going to be involved in a technological advancement of this place and as we started to talk more about technology uh, we were talking about how you build a stadium in today's world because you don't know what the world's going to look like in 50 or 100 years. And his example was using the L.A. Coliseum where, you know, no one knew what this was going to be when they built it. They needed it in the 1920s, right. eventually became this, this and this. But now you're building this. And what are you going to think in 100 years of what are we going to need for this land? And he says, when we started building this, we didn't even really realize how Lyft and Uber was going to affect our parking. You have to build parking, but maybe we don't need as much parking as we thought because people are coming to games on this. Or, you know, maybe the uh, public transportation develops better. And then we got into this crazy conversation about flying cars. (laughs) And I... And I started laughing, and he said, no, really? And it was like, oh, shoot, he's serious about this. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, he's, he's basically saying, we have the technology now to build a flying car. So it's not out of the question. It's just a matter of when are we going to do it, and why are we going to do it, and how can we do it? And then I am starting thinking, can you imagine flying cars around SoFi Stadium when you've already got the planes in the air? You had to build a stadium underground almost half of it just because of the flight pattern of LAX. Can you imagine idiots and flying cars trying to land those things? And and so I wasn't going to go down the direction. I just said, hey, Stan, I got an all-electric car. Are you going to have plugs when I go in there? You know, at least he goes, oh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be fine. But then he started going off about his background in environment and how he used to plant trees. And he loves open green spaces. And, yeah. and this is really important to him. And I said, God, I hope you don't, you know, 50 years down the road when we're all gone, they don't convert these open spaces into carports for flying cars. And, you know, he kind of laughed about that. And to me, the, the part hearing him laugh and hearing him kind of go off about different things was really uh, more fulfilling for me as I was listening and talking in that it wasn't as much an interview as it was a conversation that could be transcribed to be an interview. So that's kind of what was cool about the whole experience. Yeah. And it's, you know, they're very different people. But again, it goes back to the whole, you know, you you, you fill a void with something if, if there's nothing to obvious to fill it with. And you look at, you know, Phil Anschutz, too, is, is a guy who, you know, nobody knows anything about Phil. How, how long has he been in Los Angeles? 20, 20 oh, years yeah. now he's been and And I heard I heard stories. I mean, obviously, I, I worked for the Kings for, for three years. Right. And I would hear stories about how literally just, you know, people are in line to buy a hot dog and, you know, they get their hot dog and they turn around and Phil Anschutz is standing there in line to buy a hot dog <laughs> at Staples Center, the building that he owns. He could literally just go walk in a door and get a hot dog. Um, and you it's don't like, even know what it looks like, right? Nobody would know. I and mean, nobody's bothering him. Right. Nobody's, you know, asking him questions right. because uh, you, you barely know uh, what the guy looks like. But I, I guess it's, uh, it, it's from Stan's perspective, it, it doesn't seem like he's bothered by that. I mean, he, he just kind of lives his life and uh, he, he doesn't feel that need, I think, when, when you talk about other owners, you know, obvious ones being Jerry Jones and, you know, Dan Snyder, people like that who always seem to even do things to, to get themselves in the news. It really doesn't seem like he has that 
uh, desire to, to be out there. He has his things that he's interested in. He has his things that he's passionate in. Uh, but, but I don't think he's ever going to be that guy who's just out there uh, doing interviews a lot and getting attention and that sort of thing. I think it's a little bit of a shame, isn't it? Because, I mean, you, you learned a lot about him and you got some fascinating stuff uh, uh, from him. It's, uh, I understand what he does, but it, it's a little bit of a shame that, that people can't get to know him uh, a little bit um, on that level like, like you did. Well, it may be in some ways he, he fears that he's not as sophisticated in some ways, like people are trying to get information from him or, mm. you know, get money out of him or something. So maybe he's a little bit more pulled back. Maybe it's his, you know, M- Middle West, Missouri roots that are kind of what he's all about. I mean, I, I felt like I had more fun talking to him about when um, back when they were talking about arena football, because he had talked to John Elway about being a partner in an arena league. And then basically figured out, I mean, we got the Pepsi Center. We got it. We got everything that was going to make this work. And then if you win a championship and you still can't make money in Arena League, then eh, maybe something's wrong with the business model. So uh, one of the things I was interested in, too, is where his background was, because he explained in most bios you read about him. He says, well, he's got a B.A. in this and in, in business and an MBA. Mm-hmm. But his he, he kind of explained a little bit more about how his B.A. was really focused on economics and his MBA was really about finance and marketing. So he had all these things covered. And any accountant will tell you there's a huge difference in what people do in different parts of the business sector. And he kind of knows all of them. So just to start with from that case, and then when he came in here in the 1990s and started developing LA as things, and again, I, it, the lead to my story in this part was that he once told Paul Tagliabue, hey, this land that the uh, Hollywood Park is on, you ought to buy it. Just, you know, right. horse racing industry is kind of going downhill. You might think about buying it. And that and the NFL wanted nothing to do with gambling at that time. And so the, he goes, OK, well, you know, he kind of puts that in his back pocket. And now when it comes open, he just grabs it or, you know, gets gets linked to it because that's just what he does. He knows a good piece of land when he sees it. And when we were talking about how he got involved in wanting to even buy a team, you know, he was talking about how he 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 saw he saw Ted Turner by the Atlanta Hawks. The NBA was all I think to him was his passion. Uh, he was a baseball player, but he loved playing basketball. And so when he saw Ted Turner by the Hawks for two million dollars in the early seventies, he go, hey, maybe maybe I can do that someday. But as he was collecting capital and getting his business started, he couldn't catch up. So eventually, Paul Allen buys the Portland Trailblazers for eighty million, and he says, Nah, I still can't do this. And he finally grabs the Nuggets. And with that, he grabs the avalanche, and then he builds this little empire. But when the Rams came from L.A. to St. Louis, and he was able to right away buy a share of that from the Rosenblum people, he had to give up those NBA and NHL ties. So he developed, just like Jerry Busted with his family, a uh, an enterprise to where the, the son can own and run the team, and his wife can own and run this team. And so he really did use the Bus family as a model, which is interesting to me because now he's building a stadium right across the street from where Jerry Buss used to set up his shop. And now he's, he's the LA mogul that Jerry Buss once was. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing I was, I was curious about it. A couple of things I wanted to, to touch on before we actually go back to the books too, because I, I found that really oh, fascinating, sure. but the, the LA, you, 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 a few, with a few of your questions, I, I think you, you kind of touched on 
the LA market. You, you asked him, uh, you know, about Inglewood and, and what was going on there and, and the future of, of LA and that sort of thing. And, and I was pretty impressed uh, by his answers. Now, as you said, oh, he, yeah. he's not an LA guy really at all. Like you said, he's a Midwest guy. Um, I, I know he's had a home out here for a little while, but but his interests in terms of business and such are all over the place. Even you know, like right. you say with with Arsenal in in England and and all that stuff. Oh yeah. But it, it seemed to me that whether 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 it's a native thing or whether it's something that that he's really worked on, um, he's he's getting a pretty good kind of understanding of of Los Angeles and uh, kind of where maybe he fits and you know the things that he wants to do, where the stadium fits. Uh, within the the market or just within the entertainment uh, industry and all that. Uh, did that come across to you just in terms of he, he really, I don't want to say he's done his homework, that sounds a little bit trite, but uh, it's just that, that he's he's kind of done the work here uh, to, to see what needs to be done and kind of where he fits in, in in a really, really complicated landscape. Yeah, well, I, I think it goes back to, to when he was, you know, starting real estate development in, in L.A. in the 90s, and he really liked the vibe, the creativity. He knew this is where a lot of creative people lived and worked. I mean, he even pointed guys like Al Michaels and people in the business of television because he uh, he was very fascinated with television and and another story I think that got taken out of the the interview was fascinating to me. One of the things that really turned him on to sports was when he saw the first Ali Frazier fight from Manila, and he saw how HBO televised it and as a special event and how people bought this thing and how they could access sports via this is satellite TV at the time which would hadn't been used much. And that was another big drawing point to him to see the, the bigger scope of how technology was shaping sports. And so, I mean, he eventually buys the Nuggets and the Avalanche, but he also buys Altitude. He sets the Altitude cable channel up to carry those two teams and more, his MLS team. So he really understands how the media works with the team and how the NFL being in Los Angeles is really a big media project as well as just a business and he, he sees how Silicon Beach in Venice is growing. And he said when he first spent a ton of time in L.A. in the mid-90s, so much has changed and accelerated. And he could see the convergence of technology for content and streaming and, and how this was, L.A. was such a dynamic place. And what's funny, in the middle of the interview, he goes, you know, it, it's, this, it's, it's, tech, it's always technology. Again, he's going back to the books we were talking about. It's always technology and Moore's Law about how things keep accelerating. So I'm like Googling Moore's Law right away. What in the heck is he talking about? And what Moore's Law is, is the idea that the number of transistors on a microchip doubles every two years, and that halves the cost of a computer. So if if technology is is accelerating at this speed, you've got to be ahead of the curve or at least try to keep up with it. And if your head is in the game as to, I'm going to stay in pace with all this thing, then that really influences what you buy as far as real estate and property. And and that, to me, again, was another fascinating aspect of him that, uh, I mean, he understands as well, too, about what he's doing in Inglewood because he addressed some things about the gentrification of Inglewood and how people think that that maybe is, you know, we're part of this process. But he really thinks, he believes in this, how everybody, um, if, if he says, if you're honest, those are good, that's a good problem to have because we're raising the level of quality of life everywhere. We're not just coming in and buying out a, a distressed piece of property and building it up and, and you know, making profits on it, even though it is a privately owned 
business thing that he's doing here. And he did emphasize that this is privately owned. But he thinks he is actually uh, making the world a better place. And if that's your theory behind it, uh, more power to you, because you could just be one of these, you know, capitalistic barons who just want to come in and, and profit from it from yourself. But he really does want to make a lasting mark, a, a something that's in L.A. that's going to last 100 years and be something that his he and his family and his, his ancestors can be proud of. Yeah, that, that's interesting because it, it ties into what I was going to kind of talk about next is there was a part early on in the in the Q&A, you, you kind of went into a little bit of his backstory just about his, you know, how he got into ownership and kind of why he did it right. at the time. And, and you asked him about, you know, oh, it was a little bit different then in terms of, you know, why people were motivated to get in and, you know, how much money you, you made off of being a sports owner and that sort of thing. And he had an interesting quote. I, I don't, I don't think this is his quote, but he, he said something to the effect that the, you don't, you don't fall in love with your deals. I, I think that was absolutely the, the exact yeah. quote, but it's, it's interesting right. to me because I, I think I know what he's saying, and I don't want to, you know, misapply it to, to certain things. But I kind of contrasted that because I understand what he's saying in the sense of, you know, you have to make business decisions that make business decisions. But reading it throughout, I, I got a different kind of, you know, kind of a passion for it. And and the other thing that, that struck me is we don't we don't know these things specifically yet uh, because they're, they're not really putting out these numbers, but. We do know that there's been a lot of overruns at that stadium. I mean, he is spending a considerable right. amount more than than he had intended to. Now, again, we don't know the the, the different whatever it might be. We might we might never know because they don't make that stuff public. He's he's sure. financing it this himself. He's he's putting all of his money into it. So I, I was just, you know, what did you think? Because obviously, on one hand, he's saying, you know, you have to be a business person. You have to, you know, you have to look at it from a certain way, but the thing that struck me is he, he really does seem to have a lot of personal investment in this stadium. I don't know whether he sees it as kind of his, you know, last big kind of lasting legacy in a way, not in a, in a, you know, egotistical way, but just, you know, this, this is my, this is my big thing. You know, this is what, this is going to be kind of my, my thing that I'm leaving to Los Angeles for the next, you know, hundred years or whatever it might be. Um, how about that? I mean, just that kind of contrast of I, he was more, I don't want to say emotional, but he, he was more kind of invested in, in, in things than, than I thought he would be. Absolutely. I mean, there was one quote, he says, we're not compromising one bolt, you know, for the price of one bolt for whatever this costs to make, because right. they want to do it right. And they want to do it. This is the, this is the time and the place to do it. This is the opportunity you get maybe once in a lifetime to create something that's going to be so special. That's going to last a long time. And it, you know, in Hollywood, we always think that, oh yeah, we, that's a lot of people can say that, but who actually does it? Who actually starts their own movie studio? Who actually right. creates their own enterprise like this? And when you, when you think of people who have kind of parachuted into L.A. or Southern California and tried to create something you know, as a sports monument, I, I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I, I think of Donald Trump and he came in and he took Ocean Trails Golf Course, which three holes had fallen into the ocean in Palos Verdes. And this right. was a, a course that was a beautiful course, but it needed a lot of fixing up. So he invested tons of money, God bless him, into to building the course back up putting in 18 holes, and then he slapped this enormous fee on people who wanted to play it. And it I'll tell you, as a golfer, I don't like the course at all because it just feels too tricked up. It feels phony. 
It, uh, it has nothing to do with who owns it. It's just, it's like, this isn't LA. But this thing in Inglewood, which you can see when you land at LAX, I can see it from my freaking house as I look over. And I'm in, I'm in Redondo Beach, and I can <laughs> see this thing. And I, and I tell him this. I go, this is amazing. You cannot be anywhere in LA and not see this thing. It's just mushroomed out of the ground, right. and everyone feels like they have a part of it because they can. It's part of the, the the scenery now of LA. It's not something that was created out of some myth. It was. It's this is a, a cool thing that they can see, and they can say, "Hey, I was part of this when it was built." You know, my kids used to go to game. And it, it, it's going to be one of those long term things. And again, it goes back to setting up a beachhead. It's not just a stadium. And, and one of the questions I wanted to ask him was. Hey, listen, when you want to expand this thing, are you just going to buy the Inglewood Cemetery across the street and just like, you know, <laughs> start relocating people? Because that's such a huge property that's never been touched. Right. And I, I didn't want to get into that because I thought it was a little morbid. But to me, as a business person, that is something you have to look at. Like, oh, that's such a great piece of property. It's going to be right across the street. And what are they going to use it for? But the entire city of Inglewood, I think, is going to be uplifted. The entire Southern California is going to be uplifted because of this. And I think he realizes that. And... Uh, you're right. I think I, I felt that in his voice and in his in his earnest way of trying to come across like, hey, I'm not just a guy who's landing here and I'm just going to build something and I'm going to walk away. I want this to, to make last lot. And he actually used a quote from Dean Spanos, which I thought was interesting about how you have to look 100 years ahead. Where is this going to be? And that's I, I think that's resonating with me after reading this thing again and again about what he's actually saying here between the lines and just flat out saying. Yeah, that, that was my big takeaway, too, is just uh, I, I didn't anticipate that. I mean, I, I knew it was kind of a, no. uh, you know, a business, you know, you, you build money. You, I mean, you, you spend money, you build a stadium, you, you want it to be nice, you want it to, to be a moneymaker and that sort of thing. I, I did not anticipate uh, kind of the, the, again, kind of the emotional uh, investment that, that he seems to have in, in making sure that it's right. something, something great, you know, not just, not just a nice football stadium, but like, no, you I said, think he believes in Roger Goodell as well. Roger's vision, yeah. I think was one that he wanted to make happen and accommodate him. Maybe he didn't want the chargers to share tenant, but you know, guess what? I'll, I'll do that. You know, I'll make it work. And I think he's looking at the huge grand picture. I'll play nice. I'll make this work. And now I think he's realizing as he, owns other teams and sees the dynasty and the the heritage and the and the you know the resume that you build when you own a team you're a caretaker of it and, and i think he really wants to be that yeah fascinating yeah it really was let's let's talk about the books to close with because this was it was actually i don't know whether it was a deliberate decision by the la business journal but they actually online they they broke that out into you know what we would call a, right a sidebar as old timers would call a sidebar its own little kind of uh story itself so the the books you you, you mentioned one which is uh, the the future is faster than you think that was a big one that seemed right. to be uh, for him and then some of the other ones that got mentioned uh, Phil Knight Nike founder his book uh, a shoe dog uh, how to win friends and influence people I, I think is one that uh, kind of makes the rounds uh, for for business people especially uh, the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged obviously some some classics there. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, he's apparently a big Malcolm Gladwell guy, uh, and the the idea of the ten thousand hours and and that sort of thing. Right. And then Mark Twain. I mean, I guess not surprising, given that that he's a Missouri guy, 
But I don't want to get too abstract here, Tom. But I mean, did, was there anything <laughs> that that like was there any themes there that you looked at when you look at that list and were like, yeah, I, I can see where his kind of where his brain goes, or, or is it just kind of all over the place? I mean, it, it's hard to it's hard to draw a straight line between you know Mark right. Twain and and Ayn Rand. So I, I don't know what the connection is there. But but did you kind of glean anything, or was there anything that that struck you just from from some of his choices? Well, honestly, as part of this interview, we did, like I said, we gave him a heads up on what we wanted to talk about. And and at the end of it, I said, I want to ask him about books. And I don't know if that got to him or not, because when we started this process about talking about books, the first one he came up was, you know, the future is faster than you think. And I think that's really what he's reading right now. And then I had to sort of say, what else are you reading? And he's going, eh, you know. And, and the problem when you ask that kind of question is you better be ready with books on your own. You better be smart enough to have read some <laughs> books and to think, well, maybe he's read this one. Or you can say, hey, I'm reading this one. Are you reading this one? And I happen to be rereading Shoe Dog again by Phil Knight. And so I go, hey, well, what about Shoe Dog? That's a lot of business people really say that's a really good book. And so he went on about, yeah, Phil's a good friend of mine. That's a great book. And then I started, I, st- I actually started throwing books out. And some he would go, eh. And somebody would go, so I brought up Dale Carnegie, but he got on this whole other tangent about this guy, Napoleon Hill, who was one of uh, Carnegie's uh, understudies, who actually was doing research more about how, um, uh, why economically some people succeed rather than don't succeed. So it wasn't just Dale Carnegie being nice to people, it was really how it worked in the economy and how you could advance uh, your business if you're a nice person and you make friends. But he brought up Ayn Rand, which to me was horribly surprising because I, I did not that, – that came out of left field. And again, he's thinking – he goes, you know, maybe this is a little controversial, but to me, um, it's the way she thinks and it's the way she processes economy. And that's why I gravitate toward this. The, 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 so if you're trying to connect dots, and I love to do that, the, the thing he brought up about Malcolm Gladwell was interesting because – he said in one of Malcolm's books, there's a hockey analogy that Kevin Damoff and I use or we talk about because it has to do with how athletes in the NHL are successful. And you, you can probably relate to this, too, because when you when you talk about players in the NHL, they always come up, you know, in these age groups, they develop by age groups. And so if a person is born early in the year, like in January, February, rather than later in the year, they're usually much more developed. So if you apply that to the NFL and you're trying to draft somebody and you're, you're, you're making, you know, you're checking off boxes and you go, I wonder if this guy is really good for his age or he's young for his age or he's overachieved. So I, to me, it was, I was, I started looking up the Rams roster to see if everybody was born in January. You know, I started doing like, maybe he's applied this already, but it, to me, it's, it's the kind of thinking that you have to do. That's not analytics and it's not, you know, old school. It's more like, hey, that's common sense. And if Malcolm Gladwell is bringing it up, let's with a different sport, let's see if we can apply it to our sport and let's see if we can, um, you know, see if it makes any sense. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. So that's kind of where I was drawing the analogies through the books. And, And to me, it always circled back to technology. And I didn't think of him as a tech guy at all. But and he probably doesn't think of himself as a tech guy at all either. Uh, but the fact that he's so on top of where it's going. And I thought actually the, the the headline to the whole story could have been the name of that book. The future is faster than you think, because I think he was kind of giving us a heads up. Hey, 
you know, don't don't take not technology for for granted in any aspect of how sports works. And that's, again, where we talk about how the media is an influencer. You know, without technology, we don't have instant replay. Without technology, we don't have a draft remote from all these different places. So um, it works on so many different levels. And in the future, there's going to be some tech guy who's running the NFL who's going to be really basing you know, decisions on on analysis and things like that, that on technology we don't even know about yet. So not to get too, you know, Jetsons on us here, but. <laughs> no, but I, I know that from from touring the stadium a couple of times. I mean, that's that's yeah. been pointed out is. Uh, they built you know, stadiums as basically a, a TV studio at this yeah. point. I mean, that was the thing that was, I, I resonated with me when I took a first tour of Ta- Staples Center back in 1999. Michael Roth is showing us, Here's where they're going to show high def television. I go, what the heck is high def television? And they were right. already prepared for that. They already knew sight lines for cameras and things. And and if if the NFL or if any sport has to shut down during this time with with this virus going on, they could easily function as a TV show. I mean, you could right. you could uh, superimpose people in the stands. You could create a TV show with with uh, you know a CGI or whatever you could do it with, but it would still sort of something you can enjoy at home. It doesn't have to be a live experience. Yeah. And I think they're planning in a way they're even planning for things that they don't know yet. I mean, that's, that's oh, what struck absolutely. me too is, you know, we're, they're kind of leaving this open and going, well, you know, we know, we know this is probably going to change in five years or two years oh, yeah. or two months or whatever. And uh, yeah. I think they're designing a lot of that with that in mind. Like this is not just how it's going to be. If things change, we're not going to have to do a $500 million refurbish of of the stadium oh, right, right. Uh, to 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 make it uh, you know modern or whatever they're well, kind of Staples Center every every four or five years Staples Center does a refresh because they know right. there's new stuff that they need so yeah it's yeah. it's tough yeah it is it's uh, but again they they have that long uh, that long vision in mind and and to hear that directly from Stan you, you kind of figure or at least I did anyway before reading your interview you kind of figure he pays people to figure that stuff out you know to where <laughs> it's kind of like he he's kind of the money guy and you know you, you pay the smart people to figure it out but but to read that he right. is actually such a kind of a hands-on uh, investment in that was uh, again uh, the one thing that, that really grabbed me on that well the other book that was left out of this list that I'm reading my notes now is saying that he loves to read books about Charlie Mon- Longer. And Charlie is a, bil- a billionaire business partner of Warren Buffett. And Charlie's an LA guy. He, uh, di- I think he set up Costco Wholesale as one of the big things here. He, he owns the Daily Journal co-op based in LA. And, you know, Warren Buffett, obviously, with Berkshire Hathaway. Right. But, but Charlie is somebody I think he really inter- is interested in how he developed his indust- industry. And Charlie's in his 90s. So I think if, yeah. if the future is what uh, what Stan wants to look at, I think he thinks of himself. Well, if Charlie made it this long and doing it this this way, maybe I, you know, I should see what he's doing. You know, what what pills is he taking? How does he stay active? And and um, he was really excited to tell me about how Warren Buffett once visited his little hometown because Carol Loomis, who is a retired writer at Fortune magazine, he she helps him write his annual newsletter to the shareholders, and she's related to him through marriage. And he, he's telling me this, and I go, I can't believe I'm. You know, he's getting this deep into the woods about his life and his family. And he goes, we have this, we came from this small German burg that has a lot of history. And Warren just visited us because he wants to, you know, he's interested in, in history and stuff. And 
And so that, again, it was not included in the story, but that was another sort of nugget I could take out of this interview that was like, wow, this, he's very deep, very um, grounded in a lot of ways that we probably wouldn't think. Yeah, I, I agree. That's, uh, you, you learned a lot more about him um, and, and yeah. not just kind of the, the things that he spends his money on. So I, I found right. that to be very uh, revealing and, and very interesting. So want to encourage everybody we we've covered you know some ground on on the interview here but it's uh, it's a really extensive and and really interesting uh in, interview to to be able to read some of Stan's answers in depth I, I think us talking about it uh gives gives an accurate reflection of it but to actually read his words I, I think is a lot more valuable so would encourage everybody uh either to get a hard copy of the LA Business Journal I know that's difficult in these days but uh <laughs> if, if you can certainly pick one up but also uh readily available online again LA Business Journal uh, dot com and it's it's right there on the front page uh, of the website so you can check that out and I'm sure it'll be yeah up there it, he's very much into esports too I don't know if we talked much about that but the esports is something that his son is into mm-hmm. he talked about how how Bob Kraft is involved and so there's a lot of big you you follow the money right where's money in sports going it's going into esports and if a guy like right Bob Kraft and Stan Kroenke are investing in it you know there's got to it's got to be something to it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I don't, you know, people of our age or maybe don't necessarily <laughs> follow right. it exactly. But yeah, I agree. Absolutely. These but that's people, what I said. Uh, how do you trust? That's what I asked him. How do you yeah. trust that esports is really the future? He goes, I, my son, you know, it's right. got to rely on my son. Right. And these people, so. they, they don't become billionaires because they're, they're dumb, like <laughs> no, you said. So no, when they, no. when they follow, when they put their money in something, uh, pretty wise yeah. to, to follow that. So exactly. Uh, Tom, fantastic job with the interview. Congratulations on, on landing it and, and uh, turning it into something really special. I, I think you, you know, you started off by saying you're not a business guy necessarily, but I, I think in this instance, it probably helped you maybe even because you, you didn't have that. Absolutely. I think know, it does. That narrow focus. You didn't come in just thinking as a business reporter, you came in thinking, uh, a lot about a no. lot of different things, and and I think that shows up yeah. in, in the interview. So I agree. That's it's kind of a, a a good rule to follow. Is you know, if you want to know about somebody, talk to them about what their passions are rather than what they do in business and. It, it kind of relates. It'll all relate somehow. It does. Yeah, it does. So definitely everybody check that out. Twitter at Tom Hofarth, all one word, always an entertaining follow on a, on a lot of different uh, <laughs> areas of, of life and, and in sports. Tom, any, anything else you want to uh, promote or, or share? I, I know your, your work gets uh, uh, published in a lot of different places these days, but uh, I assume Twitter is a good place to keep track of you. Twitter is where I can always promote things. I always have a, I have a, a couple of websites, and I'm starting a, a a book review for you know new baseball books that are coming out. My, my website is called FartherOffTheWall.com, and it's really fun to talk to authors who've written new books. And we have a, a website called TheDrillLA.com, where my partner Steve Lowry and I have done some webcasts and we've done some interviews and tried new things too. So it's it's a, another place to find stuff that you know we've been working on and. Uh, it, the, the, the fun part about these last couple of years for me is just doing all different kinds of things and, and staying involved in, in, you know, just sp- you know, spread out and try new things. And it's, it's fun to do this, 
this kind of stuff. So I, I appreciate the opportunity and, and it's great to talk to you again, Rich. It is. One day we'll do a pot. We'll, we'll share some old stories about some of the, uh, <laughs> as soon as the statute of limitations runs out on some of them, we'll, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we'll, we'll have some stories about covering LA sports over the last uh, oh, yeah. 20 years or oh, so. Yeah. But Tom, thanks a lot. And uh, definitely everybody go check out that interview in the LA business journal and, and uh, follow along with on Twitter at Tom Hofarth for the latest uh, everything that's going on in Southern California. Tom covers everything, so he's got you covered. Uh, Rams fans, thanks a lot. We are still in the heart of the free agency period. Uh, we'll be back with you soon to talk about all the latest moves and uh, start setting up the excitement for the draft and everything. It's the off season. Things move very fast. So by the time we're, we're back with you, there will be a lot to talk about and a lot to dissect. So hope everybody is doing well out there. Always follow along with me on Twitter at rich underscore Hammond. Try to keep you updated on everything that's going on with the Rams on a day-to-day basis. And uh, we will be back with you with the next episode of 11 personnel very soon. So have a good week, everybody. Take care.